Good morning, everyone. I understand that we have uh, John Adamson's class in here, too. If you are in John's class and you're coming in, raise your hand if you're in John's class. Well, welcome, everyone. And um, uh, he, is a, he is a good husband and takes care of his wife. And so you got, you got relegated to me. Sorry about that. Um, especially when you hear what we're doing today. So I apologize in advance. So I begin with a story. Once upon a time, when I was a very, very young man, I was unaware that the little light in your dashboard that looks like an oil can meant anything. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that, uh, I didn't know what that means. And um, so when I'm pulled off to the side of the road with my engine on fire and um, black smoke billowing out, um, I decided to look up what that light meant. So that was a tough lesson. <clears throat> now, if you had asked me, wouldn't you be excited to go to a class that tells you what those little lights on your dashboard mean? That would have been the most boring thing in the world to me. But boy, I wish I had taken that little class, whatever that was. And this was pre-internet, so I had to actually use a dictionary to find out something. So today is sort of like, um, for those of you coming in from John's class, today is sort of like uh, the how to know what the lights on your dashboard class is. It is important, but it's not something you would parachute into and say, this is why I woke up this morning, was to, was to do this. Because what we're doing today is Module 7, Session 7, in our How to Study the Bible series. And we're doing the, the third part of interpretation. And so... Uh, what we're talking about today, and this is the oil light uh, lesson, is we're, we're primarily talking about how to use commentaries and how, what some things are to beware of. So as I, as I say every time during this particular module, this isn't really a Bible study lesson. This is a Bible study study lesson, something like that. So um, I, I'm glad this is the first thing we're doing today and not the last thing. The last thing tonight will be glorious. We have uh, we have baptisms all over the place tonight and I'm preaching and, and, and we're looking at the kingdom of God so we'll work our way to the more glorious things um, this morning will not be glorious but it will be useful so that the engine light in your spiritual life uh, will be useful to you and not uh, you won't burn out your spiritual engine if I can take that metaphor way too far <laughs> so today we're going to talk about evaluating using commentaries for those of you doing assignments we're going to talk about synthesizing your study and then I'm going to just talk a little bit about application and um, so we, we have lots of time this morning so we'll take our time so let's pray and then ask the Lord for his blessing on this Lord's Day. Our Father, we come to you now and our request this morning is first and foremost God-centered. We would ask that you would be honored and glorified by our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes, our knelt-down hearts before you. I pray, Lord, that this is a glorious Lord's Day, that it is a Christian Sabbath of sorts, not under any law of Sabbath but under the concept of setting aside a day to worship and to think on you and to leave the cares of the world behind and to trust you, to trust that we need not pursue uh, worldly things on this day, but we must pursue heaven. And I pray that this is just the beginning of that this morning, Lord. Lord, we thank you for all who are here this morning, all who are on their way, all who will worship together today in our little, uh, our little corner of the church. 
I pray, Lord, that Christ would be exalted. I pray that that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit would be highlighted today in our hearts and our lives. And I would pray for this evening as well in advance. I pray for uh, those being baptized tonight, that this would be a, a memorable evening for them and one that honors and glorifies the saving power of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. At the end of our time today, it's my intention to kind of tell you what we're doing this summer, uh, meaning when we finish Module 7, we're going to do something a little bit different. The likelihood of me forgetting to tell you that is very high. So all of you may say, don't dismiss until you you tell us what we're doing. So um, you you have my permission to do that. So we're going to start off with talking about evaluating and using commentaries. Thrilling, I know, but... This is uh, this is good for you, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. <clears throat> I had a professor in seminary who who used to say, just because a bunch of sheets of paper are stitched between two pieces of cardboard, does not make it truth. Does not make it true. Um, commentaries are useful. They are not inspired. And they're not inspired just because they're written by your favorite author. This is probably in the top five questions I get as a pastor. Um, who, what authors do you trust the most? Meaning, what people do I, can I read and not, not think critically? And, not, and put my brain on the shelf and just trust that everything they say is right. That list is really short. It's zero. There's nobody that we ought to be reading and not being critical. I don't mean, I don't mean downgrading them, but, I, but just simply being analytical about what they say because everybody's flawed. I know that in heaven I'll probably be pulled aside and, and this will be the, uh, here's the everything Steve Swartz preached that was wrong meeting. And so after we get through that thousand years, then we'll get through that. Um, but... So the first thing I want to say is mostly I'm just saying read commentaries critically and they are useful. I I think it's a shame. I understand maybe 100 years ago or 200 years ago if a Christian had a library uh, in his his, uh, uh, home of maybe five, six, seven books. That would have been a big deal a century ago, um, a couple of centuries ago especially. Today, I can mention a book to you and it can be on your doorstep in 48 hours. So there's really no excuse to not have a, a library. Proverbs 23.23 says, buy truth. Uh, now it says do not sell it and that's another issue that we won't, won't get into right now. But if you're, if you're going to be serious about understanding a book of the Bible um, and the only tool you have is the Bible that your great-grandmother handed down to you, uh, that doesn't even use modern English. That's that's fine. Uh, as I always say, take that Bible, have it mounted in a beautiful frame with a plaque on it. This was my great grandmother's Bible, and they get some tools that are really useful to you. And commentaries are one of those tools. Now, as I've said before, I've hesitated bringing up commentaries until near the end of your study process because uh, it, it ruins your ability to be creative, to think critically, to make observations of the text. Um, because uh, once you read what somebody else came up with, you you can't think for yourself. I think that's that becomes uh, much more difficult. Not that you can't, but it makes it makes it harder. So my main message today is read commentaries critically. What is a commentary? A commentary is basically the result of a single author's study of a book of the Bible. 
and I'm going to I, I will, uh, Jay, I'll have to make a note of this. We have a list, I can't remember if I've sent it to you, of uh, commentaries. It's Essex's list that I've updated a little bit. Have I sent that to you yet? Uh, I don't recall. You co- okay, I put Jay on the spot. Oh, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, so that'll be one that we can send to you. If you remind me, I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, so here's some types of commentaries. There are exegetical commentaries. These are very technical. Um, most of them require some language training to be useful to you, but those aren't the only kind. Uh, the, 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 the most difficult ones have no translation at all. It just says, here's the Greek phrase, and then it, uh, and then it goes into the commentary. The English commentaries, English commentaries are technical, but they don't require language training. Um, so they're, they're just as technical, meaning that they'll dive deeply into details, issues, even the grammar, syntax, definitions, and so forth. Um, but they will, uh, in all likelihood, they will give a transliteration of the original languages. A transliteration is just an English spelling uh, of, of a word. And then expositional commentaries, they're less technical, they're more applicational. An expositional commentary, almost without exception, is written as a result of a, of a, uh, a pastor's study, a pastor's sermon series, and it's put in written form. Um, sometimes if he has a good editor beefed up by uh, some extra notes and so forth, uh, and you can tell if you read, for example, um, uh, Kent Hughes' commentaries, they read like sermons, and they're fun to read, they're just... They just read like like sermons um, because he didn't really edit them. He put them in exactly as the sermons uh, were. If you read uh, John MacArthur's commentaries, they're highly edited with a lot of footnotes, a lot of um, extra stuff in it, and it doesn't read like a sermon. It reads like a commentary, and yet both are based on, on sermons. And so they're very useful. There's good uses for all types. Um, for your purposes, English commentaries and expositional commentaries are, will be the most helpful to you. So here, how do you evaluate a commentary? Because if you go on Amazon and you type in the search bar, commentary on Galatians, your computer's going to be smoking. Where do you begin? How do you evaluate them? Well, first of all, we're going to send you a list of about the top three to five commentaries that, that we recommend for, um, for any given book. That's a great place to start. But, you know, how do we, how do we evaluate them? Uh, I have to evaluate commentaries all the time. Uh, if I'm going to begin preaching the new book, I'll generally order between 10 and 40 commentaries. And uh, by the time I get past 30 commentaries, then I'm just taking whatever's next on the Amazon page because I just I want to get some different viewpoints, especially if it's a, a book I've preached before a long time ago. So how do you evaluate them? This is the uh, how to look at the lights on your dashboard part. So... They're written by fallible human beings. You always start there. Don't be afraid to disagree with a commentary. Just have a good reason for it. Does that make sense? You know, um, for example, you, you read something in a commentary you don't like. If you can say, here are three reasons I think that, that logic is, is faulty, great. You saying, oh yeah, I don't like this guy. That's not a reason. Okay? Or, well, his theology is different than mine. That doesn't mean he's wrong. Okay? When somebody has a point of theology that's different than you, that doesn't make him a heretic and it doesn't mean he's wrong on everything in life. It just means he's wrong on the thing you disagree with him on. And that's fine. Um, Know this. There are more bad commentaries than good ones. And I, I, I don't know what the ratio is. I'm going to say for every one good one, there's five bad ones. That's just a, that's just a guess from my experience. 
Look intently to discern an opinion stated as fact and facts supported with reasons. An opinion stated as fact. I'm going to uh, either, yeah, maybe tonight, I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I'm going to quote actually one of my favorite commentators on the wisdom literature, but for some reason when he gets to the book of Job, everything turns symbolic. And he says, very likely Leviathan in the book of Job represents Satan. He gives zero reasons. The only reason he gives is the phrase, very likely. So mark that out. Any emotional language that states an opinion as a fact, mark out the emotional language or the manipulative language. Why is it very likely? So you're turning the page going, here's five reasons it's very likely. Okay, that's reasonable. You can, you can go with that. Here's another thing to be aware of. And this is why it's important to have, if you're going to do a serious study of a Bible book, it's important to have multiple sources. Uh, I get this question all the time. What's the best source for this particular book of the Bible? And that's, that's a trick question. And I'll tell you why. Because the best source uh, might be quoting some other sources that aren't quite as good, but they have other things to offer that the so-called best source doesn't. Um, so here's something to be aware of. Commentaries quote each other all the time. So beware of the fact, and this is why it's important to order some new commentaries and to get some old ones too. Because just because five generations of commentators quote going back, 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 and you read, well, look, they all agree on this. If you trace it far enough, you find they're all just quoting one guy. And that's not, that's not a legitimate reason. So you just have to be careful of that. Um, I think a great example is you know, our beloved brother John Calvin has done so much for the church. He changed the world with his stance on Reformed theology. But in, in his commentaries and in his, his theology, Institutes of Christian Religion, he, he leans on Augustine heavily, very heavily. Augustine is basically the inventor of the whole system of amillennialism. And so, um, and, and yeah, Origen, and, uh, Origen before him and um, a couple of others were, were amillennial. They didn't call it that. But so Augustine, wonderful, genius theologian who was really wrong on a few things. Calvin quotes him extensively and it becomes almost canonical. It becomes almost like, well... Are you saying you're smarter than Calvin or Augustine? No, I would never say that, and that's the wrong question. What I'm saying is is that they're fallible. And one fallible man quoting another fallible man does not make it factual. Um, I would call that propaganda, to be honest with you. Uh, what, what do, uh, if I can use this word, are we being recorded? Yes. What do liberals do? <laughs> what, what do liberals do in the political realm? They say lies over and over again in enough realms, in enough venues, until everyone believes it's true. Commentaries can do the same thing. And I, I can't think of a single commentary I've ever read where I thought this man was just absolutely evil. Um, but it's pretty hard to say, well, I'm going to disagree with Calvin and Augustine. I want to encourage you to do so, to use your own reasoning. Um, here's another way to evaluate commentaries. Free online commentaries like Matthew Henry and so forth. Have you ever heard the phrase, you get what you pay for? There's a reason they're free. 
They're probably free because they're old, and that's great, and they're, they're historic. Matthew Henry um, uh, Clark's commentaries are available free online. There's, there's a bunch of old ones. But if, the, if all the sources you're using are more than 300 years old, you know, I, I would say what that basically says is that nothing anybody's studied in the last 300 years is meaningful to you or is, is helpful at all. Um, I would hope that 100 years from now, if Christ hasn't returned, that somebody has preached a series, corrections to Steve Swartz's series on the millennium because further study has been done and that's, that's good. And I always fall back on 1 Timothy 4.15 let your progress be made known to all. When somebody says, well I think you've changed on this. Yep, 1 Timothy 4.15 I've learned and I've grown. So beware of free commentaries. They're nice um, but they, they sort of lend themselves to hero status the older they get. Uh, Matthew Henry's commentaries. He is just a terrific uh, Puritan type pastor that wrote a lot of wonderfully terrible things. And, you know, he wrote a lot of very, very good things and a lot of really terrible things because that was 400, 500 years ago. So, um, so that just because it's written by somebody who's a legend and that you've seen in, in Christian bookstores with, you know, the, the one volume set of Matthew Henry and so forth, that doesn't make it more valuable. You have to evaluate it on its own merits. Uh, John Calvin's commentaries. Anything you read that he writes about soteriology is 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 legendary and rightly so. Anything he writes about eschatology is just crazy. It just doesn't make sense because he's coming at it from a particular uh, system that he voices on scripture, which in his era, to be fair, everyone else was doing that as well. Um, There there was no such thing as a dispensationalist in John Calvin's era who called himself that. They were the crazy people in in the huts drawing charts with flashlights under their covers. Um, So he was in the majority at that time. So just be, be careful that free commentaries are nice, but um, they, you get what you pay for. I've said this before, but beware the temptation to start immediately with commentaries. It becomes difficult to form uh, your own intelligent thoughts. And a little side note here. Um, same thing goes with theologies. A, a systematic theology book, for example, where you can look up in the table of contents everything the Bible says about angels, everything about the Bible the Bible says about Christology or theology. Um, I think a lot of believers consider themselves very smart and very well read because they've read a lot of what other men have studied, but they haven't developed their own understanding of Scripture based on their own study. Um, I've even seen churches go so far as to start quote-unquote Bible studies and put pictures online of their Bible studies and everybody holding up their Wayne Grudem theology. That's not a Bible study. That's a study of what other men said about the Bible, which is fine, but just call a spade a spade. So, my reasoning for this is you start with the Bible and then use other resources to help you. Uh, you know, for example, if I, if I asked you to, you know, right now, look around the room and think of five features and you have 10 seconds to do it. Nine, eight, but don't think about the green chairs. Seven, six, what did you just, that's all you can think about now. So leave the sources till later. All right. Uh, now is where we get into another light on the uh, on the dashboard that might feel a little boring. Commentators will often cross-reference books from the Apocrypha. 
uh, the Apocrypha, First and Second Maccabees, Tobit, uh, the Prayer of Manassas, and so forth. Don't be alarmed by this. Don't go drop it in the trash. Don't don't set it on fire. Don't proclaim heretic or anything like that. Don't be alarmed. What it does uh, very often is help establish the normal usage of a word or the normal usage of a concept over the time that the Apocrypha was written, which is primarily um, between the time of the Testament. So it's actually a really useful bridge. When somebody quotes it as a proof for a theological concept, that's not legitimate. If somebody quotes it as proof that Jews believed something during this era, then that is legitimate. Um, So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and don't freak out by that. So what do commentaries do for you? They serve as a check for your own study. Um, You check several scholars on the same passage. It helps keep you from being misled, uh, avoiding, it helps you avoid unnecessary mistakes, shallow assumptions, um, ridiculous conclusions that only you have come up with. And, And when you read five commentaries on a particular passage and they all agree with each other and disagree with you then you know stop for a minute and decide am I willing to keep pushing this argument Uh, and if not then I need to reevaluate um, it provides specialized and detailed information not readily available in the text. Historical information, geographical information, cultural, chronological, grammatical info, um, all kinds of things that are very helpful and help kind of paint a picture of what's going on. And it provides that particular author's unique application to the text, and that stimulates your own thinking. Uh, the New American, uh, not New American, the um, New International Version Application Commentary, the NIV Application Commentary. It's, it's a little hard to navigate because of the way they set it up, but they have some fantastic applications in there. And um, while we don't like the NIV uh, translation itself, the commentary series is very useful. And, and in, in passages that may be a little more difficult to apply, um, you go to the NIV Application Commentary and you've got pages and pages of potential applications. So um, that's helpful. Okay, now, you thought that uh, this particular part was just the oil lights, and well, I can deal with oil lights. We have to move on now to something that's even more difficult than the oil light. But it is necessary. And that is uh, the idea of being aware of commentaries on the Gospels. I know this is specialized, but this is a really important um, thing for you to be aware of. And I'm doing a super short version. I've done a longer lecture on this on this topic. This is the very short version. But I want you to be aware of source criticism. Um, and just so you know, in Bible study circles, the word criticism doesn't mean I'm mad at you or that I think you're a bad person. It's just evaluation. Okay? Um, Source criticism in the Gospels is particularly uh, an issue. It, it was a big issue 40 and 50 years ago. Um, here's the problem. It was debated 40 and 50 years ago. Now it's just accepted as truth. And that's, that's not okay. So here's what you're looking for. Um, the two-source theory, which originated all the way back in the, um, uh, in the 18th century... And I have this is a very short slide, isn't it? Um, it's a very short slide. Okay, the two-source theory back in the 18th century it holds to what um, is called Markan priority that the Gospel of Mark was written first. And you say, who cares? They're all written 2,000 years ago. Which who cares whether which one came first? Well, 
this is why you should care. They would say that it's shorter, it's simpler, and so they assume then that the other Gospels uh, were, were based on the Gospel of Mark, that Mark became a source for them. Um, Mark and Priority holds to an imaginary document called Q. And this is from uh, the German word uh, Kell or Quell, however you say it. It just means source. And so here's, here's the reason I'm telling you this. When I say the word imaginary document to you, you say, well, then that's ridiculous. But there are tons of commentaries on the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels that reference Q as if it exists. Q has never been found. There is no such thing as Q. And the, the reason this is so important is because... Q, the existence of this imaginary document, would destroy one thing. And that is the fact that what we have in the Gospels is direct information. If Q exists, then uh, the Gospel of Mark is a secondary source. It's a quote of the real thing. And that separates us from Scripture, separates us from the Word of God. Um, Matthew and Luke... Both have material not in Mark, and so what they would say is they must have used Q also. So when you see um, letters like Q, M, and L, those are those are uh, imaginary documents. Where does the M and L come forth? Um, the two source theory says that Q exists. The four-source theory, it's the same as two-source, but they also say that Matthew used an imaginary document called M, and Luke used an imaginary document they call L. And so here's the... The reason I'm telling you this is the majority of critical commentaries on the Gospels treat Q, M, and L like they're real. Nobody's ever gone to the library and checked out the book Q. Nobody's ever done that. Um, So beware of this. It doesn't make the commentary bad as far as the text goes itself, but it does betray a low view of Scripture. It basically says that this gospel is not the original words of Jesus Christ. The originals are found in Q, M, and L. And that's that's a dangerous place to go. Why does Jesus say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why does John 3.16 say that? Because that's what Jesus said. So you can't go around saying that, uh, that these are just quotes. Now, one of the big things that they'll say is, well, look at Luke 1, 1 through 4, where it says Luke consulted other sources. Yes, he did. Little tiny fragments that are not inspired. The final product is inspired. And Luke tells us right up front, I consulted other sources. They're not imaginary. They're, they're some oral stories, some collections he investigated. That's why the Gospel of Luke is so detailed. It's written as if a doctor wrote it. It's very, very detailed. So what's the problem with this? And you might be saying, I did not show up to church today to talk about source criticism. Well, here's some problems. First of all, it assumes the existence of imaginary documents. And for the average church member, um, for the average church member, for you to, to say, wow, this guy's really smart. I mean, he has multiple degrees in theology. He's been writing for decades. Who am I to say? Well, who you are is a reasonable, logical person. To say, 
Q doesn't exist, M doesn't exist, L doesn't exist. So when you say that my Bible comes from that, then I'm going to reject that. So that's okay to do. It, it ignores the fact that the early church for hundreds of years was unanimous, unanimous that Matthew was written first. Followed by Luke and then Mark. Our current order comes from Augustine, um, who felt that Mark came first. So um, it, it, it ought to be Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John, but that kind of messes up the way we think, right? So we, we don't do that anymore. Uh, it assumes this is the this is the, um, the the really important part of this. The reason that two-source and four-source theory even exists is because the scholars who believe this assume that there are contradictions in the Gospels uh, that must be explained away. There, there are no contradictions in the Gospels. That's even, it's even uh, called the synoptic problem, the problem between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that there's, there's contradictions in there. There are zero contradictions. There are over 200 places in what we call triple tradition where they all record the same events, but it's from three different eyewitness accounts and you put them all together and that's what you have. That is the truth. There is not a single contradiction. If anybody says, well, what about the contradictions in the Gospels? Your simple response is, show me one. And one of the first ones they may go to is, well, in one Gospel, there's one angel at the resurrection of Jesus and another, there's two. How many people are in this room right now? Let's call it 50. I don't know. If 10 of you leave and we say there's 40, was there 50 or was there 40? Depends on when you're talking about. Was there one angel at the tomb or two? Depends on when you're talking about. Do you think that it can't be possible that one angel was there and two were there? Different time, different uh, circumstances. Of course that's possible. There's not a single place of triple tradition that isn't pretty easily explained. So... This assumption that there are contradictions, and this is put forward by Bible scholars, it, it's like, honestly, it's sort of like uh, being a, a theological Democrat. Here's what I mean by that. Democrats say they're in favor of our country, but everything they believe hates our country, Right? So the, the Bible scholars say, well, I'm in, I'm in favor of Scripture. I'm just going to show you a really low view of Scripture. It also assumes that God is not capable of giving us inspired documents. That Matthew, Mark, and Luke all had to do research papers. Um, and yes, Luke looked into other sources, but he specifically says this was an investigation. And his final product is inspired, as is the book of Acts, which Luke wrote. It also ignores um, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It ignores that. Uh, it, it ignores the idea of harmonizing the Gospels. It, in uh, church history, um, great men have written harmonies of the gospel as a, of the Gospels as a, a fight back against this idea. And it's, those are really important documents. You ought to have one on your shelf at least. It completely ignores the fact that these are all eyewitness accounts. Are eyewitness accounts identical? Never. Do they contradict? They don't have to, unless somebody's lying. But they, they, they might seem slightly different, but they're from all different angles, and that's fine. These are the same scholars that operate under the assumption that Matthew didn't actually write Matthew, Luke didn't actually write Luke. Um, they make the authors of Scripture liars. They ignore the unanimous understanding of the church for hundreds of years. There are many, many scholars of the Gospel of Matthew that believe it was written by somebody else uh, 200 years after the fact. No, what makes Matthew powerful is it is an eyewitness account, the first one written. 
And the early church had Matthew in its hand uh, maybe as early as 15 or 20 years after the ascension of Christ. Uh, it, let me put it this way. The Gospel of Matthew was so hot off the presses that you could send a letter to Matthew and ask him questions about what he wrote in this particular part. It was that soon. If all the authors of the Gospels used secondary sources, now they're not inspired, their writings are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's some bit, bad implications to this. This means we don't have the actual words of Jesus. It means we don't have the actual theology of Jesus. That all we have is a second-hand account that's fairly historically reliable that might have some truth in it. Do you want to base your eternity on that level of trust? Uh, This may be shocking to you, but this is the dominant view in almost every seminary in the United States today. That is the dominant view. You can really count on one hand the number of seminaries that believe that, that Q, M, and L are letters you sing when you watch Sesame Street. That's it. I just dated myself. If you don't know what Sesame Street is, I apologize. The goal of source criticism, other disciplines behind it, like form criticism, there's other other kinds. The goal, listen carefully, is to examine the history behind the Gospels rather than the Gospels themselves. And so you just have to be really careful with that. And there might be some really good, useful things, but when I see a commentary that that quotes Q, M, or L like it's real, then I'm just going to have my antenna up. Because I, I couldn't care less about a document that they say is real that isn't. I want to know, what are, you, what are you telling me about this document? This is the inspired text. This is the one we have before us. So, beware of source criticism when it comes to um, the Gospels. Beware of source criticism when it comes to the New Testament letters. Basically, source criticism is the assumption that we can challenge the authorship of New Testament letters and that they were compiled using Paul's name and using Peter's name, but they were by uh, anonymous authors. What does that make those anonymous authors? Liars, right? If, for example, I was to write something and say, this is by the Apostle Peter, you would say, I don't want to sit under your preaching anymore because you've gone over a cliff. Why is it any different for somebody who lived one or two hundred years after Peter? They're just as big a liar as I would be. So um, beware of that. If somebody challenges the authorship of Matthew as not being by Matthew, be really, really wary of that and, and, and move on because um, they're probably not going to be that useful. What's the one New Testament book we can challenge authorship on? Anybody know? Hebrews. Hebrews. Yeah, because we're not given an author. Um, there's, there's a lot of good arguments for uh, several different ones. But uh, generally, the, the books tell you. Now, they'll say, well, Matthew doesn't ever say uh, Matthew wrote it. You know why? Because um, the early church, 100% of the time, believed that Matthew wrote Matthew's gospel. You want to know why? Because he told them. Because he, he was still alive when it was being passed around. Okay? So that's a pretty simple reason. And one clue we get in Matthew's gospel is that he doesn't ever call himself Levi. That's his Jewish name. Matthew is his sinner's name as a tax collector. He always calls himself Matthew. Um, so that's a, that's a, there's a little clue there. Beware of source criticism in the Old Testament. 
if you're studying the Old Testament, source criticism says that the Torah, the Pentateuch, is a whole bunch of different authors that are all pieced together and compiled, and it was compiled sometimes hundreds or even a thousand years after the fact. Um, and so commentaries will refer to the J, E, P, and D authors. The author of J is the Yahwist portions of Scripture, of the, of the law. The E is the Elohist portion. Uh, P is the priestly portion. And D is the Deuteronomic portion. You know what I love? Is they've made it so simple to know that this is bogus. If you see one letter quoted as a document, then you know that's wrong. That's very simple. They are assigning different anonymous authors all to avoid who wrote the Pentateuch. Moses. All to avoid that simple fact. What did Jesus say about the Pentateuch? He had a nickname for it. His nickname for the Pentateuch was when Moses wrote. That was his nickname. So anybody who says this is denying the words of Christ. So that's, that gets a little serious. And then beware of historical criticism. Historical criticism says the entire Bible uh, is, is really the result of what actually happened. So you ask several questions if you're a historical criticism guy. What does the text say happened? What actually happened? And what do theologians and readers understand that happened? So you move from not trusting the text all the way to trusting your, uh, your uh, just impressions, your uh, subjective impression of a text, that that actually helps determine meaning. Now you're off in left field. So um, do you know what happened in the Bible? It's very simple. What it says happened. And so historical criticism has opened up all kinds of judgments on the Bible, all kinds of criticism. Um, Robert Gundry is a famous scholar who holds very strongly the historical criticism. He says that, that Peter was actually an apostate. That Peter denied the faith and ultimately went off the rails and is unsaved. And you would say, oh, that's crazy. Do you know that that uh, view is held in more than 50% of evangelical seminaries today? Wow. So, yeah, I, exactly. What? <laughs> um, historical criticism is presented in at least half of seminaries in our nation as the only legitimate way to study the Bible. And this is, let me tell you what's scary about this. Look, how many of you are going to work tomorrow morning at 7 or 8, 9 o'clock? How many of you are going to work? Yeah. Do you have time to open your Bible and say, I need to figure out the history that actually happened behind this event? No, you don't. You assume that when you read the Bible, the, his- the history in it is true, and rightly so. What this does is this says that the only way you can actually understand the Bible is to go to these scholars who have studied the history behind the Bible and they have the real answers. That's cultish. I, I don't think that, that I am special in that I'm teaching you things from the Bible. I just have more time to, to study than you do and that's, that's why God set up this system. But you are, as one of my professors said, the greatest guardians of Scripture because you don't have time to sit around wondering whether we should uh, question it or not. You just believe it. And that's what we ought to do. So, bottom line with all this. 
is read critically, look for supported facts, look for a profound sense of respect for the literal interpretation of Scripture. That's, that's helpful to you. Um, even in more liberal commentaries, there can be good grammar and structural information, so it doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just be careful. Uh, don't assume that because you trust an author, he's infallible. Um, look for the clear acceptance of the historicity of events. Anybody who questions history, be wary of that. Be, beware of careless symbolizing of a text without good reasons to do so. The example I gave that Leviathan equals Satan. All right, give me five reasons that you see that in the text. Um, look for arguments that support a statement. And I, we've talked about that before. Okay, I'm going to go quickly through this last part because this just has to do with assignments if you're doing them. Um, let's see. Oh, missed one. So our example of Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Last time I gave you the three major observations that we've synthesized these down. Remember, we started with 75 and I've synthesized them down. A lot of them put together into topics, into three. God requires that we rid ourselves of internal sinful attitudes and external sinful actions toward other believers. God requires that we put on godly internal attitudes and external actions toward other believers and we are to forgive others with the standard being how God has forgiven us now this is part of your Bible study process this is the I guess final act of interpretation of what does this text mean and that is a useful way to do this is a synthesis statement it can be one sentence two or three Um, I've done one so this is our one summary statement what does Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 mean? Or you could call it an exegetical proposition that what is inside matters to God and determines our actions. 75 observations, multiple definitions, multiple uh, looking into, remember the history and the, the context of Ephesians and so forth. All of that was not, uh, this statement was not arrived at by reading the text for one minute being in a circle in the Bible study and saying, what do you think this means? This interpretation is arrived at, uh, you can, what you might call reverse engineer it. Have you ever eaten something really good at a restaurant and you go home and you try to replicate it and you, and you never can? Well, some of you can. I know Don can do that. Um, if anybody ever figure out, figures out Oreo cookies, you'll be my hero because I can make those at home. But... You should be able to take your interpretive statement and reverse engineer it all the way back to how you arrived there. And if this sounds really, really nerdy to you, I understand that. If you were at women's retreat, how many here were at women's retreat? Okay. Is this useless to you? No. No. This is what the Word of God does in your heart as you do much more than just reading it at a cursory level and say, hmm, I wonder what this means. Taking that time, is, is it'll be yours forever. Let me give you a, a commentary example from our text, Ephesians 4, 31, 32. Harold Honer, he has eight pages, big pages, small print on this passage. And he says, concerning be kind to one another, Honer observes in the LXX, that's the, the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it appears 12 times. It is used to refer to Ahasuerus' graciousness to Esther when she was given Haman's house, Esther 8, 7. That's very helpful, very factual. That's a great illustration. Expositional commentary. Uh, Jim Boyce, part of, uh, part of a, a chapter on Ephesians 4, 25-32 called Putting Off and Putting On. This is from his sermon on this text. 
His only observation on the two verses is this. The last of Paul's five contrasts is a catch-all. On the one hand, he speaks of bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, six vices. On the other hand, he gives three virtues. This is... This is hugely helpful because what he's done is he's, he's opened up a, a tremendous uh, introductory comment to help set up the context. The last of five of Paul's five contrasts. So what you read there is, if I'm going to teach this text, that's how I want to introduce it. Because somebody made this observation. A couple of more thoughts on synthesizing your study. Read back through the study you've done. Uh, Mark, highlight the parts that grab your attention. Highlight the parts that are the keys. Um, highlight the things you've, you've learned that are the newest. And, and I think it's okay to just ask the question. I ask myself this question multiple times every week. What's the most interesting thing to me? What, what's the thing that just grabbed my attention? Because you know what I found out? If it grabbed my attention, it'll probably grab yours. And if I don't grab your attention uh, often enough, then you're going to go somewhere else to have your attention grabbed, Right? So at this point, now you're starting to think in terms, how do I, uh, how do I present this? Even if I'm just going to write an, an essay for myself, for my own uh, benefit, um, or, or for my family. I'm going to send them an essay on these two verses just to benefit them. Um, you're starting to think about this. So I'll give you a little sneak peek here. You've already done one technical term, exegetical proposition, the synthesis statement, what is inside matters to God and determines your actions. That's the boiled down summary, the interpretation of the text. Now you could think in terms of, this is a little technical, but a homiletical proposition. This is related to homiletics. It's just the study of presenting something. So this is your angle. This is, the, this is the color you want to give. Not the changes to the meaning, but the color. And I gave a few thoughts here. Uh, a nine-part summary of a sanctified life. Taking inventory of your walk with Christ. Inner attitudes and outer behaviors. How to be a better Betty and not a bitter Betty. However you want to put that. So, just, just a little bit of a sneak peek there. And we'll do more of that. Um, I'm going to stop there. We'll do a little bit on uh, application next time um, because then we'll, we'll get into a little bit more.